Thanks, Pastor Rob. Great to be with you uh, again, Bridge Community Church, and always a joy to be here and uh, see so many of you. And uh, great to hear what's happening in uh, India as well. This uh, last spring, we did uh, a project, a giving project across our network of churches in Pennsylvania and Delaware for Project Rescue, of course, another organization working in India, fighting uh, sex trafficking and breaking cycles of sex slavery there. And uh, students across uh, our network, uh, we set a goal for $90,000 for them to raise in the spring. And, uh, you know, you never know in this era that we're in, this COVID era, and, and how people, some, are, some are being very conservative with money, others are out there spending money. And uh, we just began to challenge students to give uh, sacrificially. And it's wonderful to, to know uh, what a generous church this is. But students across our network gave $124,000 between January and uh, June uh, for uh, Project Rescue to provide three vehicles for them. Uh, in India. Uh, and so uh, we just thank God. It's a place that, uh, of course, I have a big heart for, haven't been there and, and taught youth ministry a couple of times. And so it's great to hear what God is doing through you uh, in that nation. But uh, I want to talk to you today uh, a little bit uh, about uh, Gen Z and uh, three things today's student needs. But first, I want to give you a little quiz if it's okay with you. I'd like to find out how Gen Z. You are. How well do you know the current generation of students? Now, let me just break it down for you a little bit. Uh, you know, generational designations uh, are a thing. Uh, they're very stereotypical. Uh, very, it's a stereotypes, and so it doesn't fit everyone. But Gen Z would be uh, essentially students that are in middle school and high school today. Uh, so you've probably heard the term millennials, right? So millennials are largely in their 20s and 30s now. And so I just read an article this week um, that uh, Generation Alpha, which would be young kids now probably under the age of 10, uh, that uh, companies are now marketing towards Generation Alpha. So they're marketing because uh, kids at such a young age have devices in front of them and can recognize images and associate them with products at as early as age three. Uh, Can you believe this? So... Uh, but Gen Z would be uh, those, especially in middle school, high school, and uh, college age right now. And uh, so let's just do a little quiz here, a little test, see how Gen Z are you. So if you were to walk up to someone in Gen Z and they were to say to you this, uh, Suh, would you answer by saying duh or suh? Suh. Anybody know what it means? It's like, what's up? Yeah. What's up? Sup? So, you see how language just gets degraded over time, right? Yeah. So, here we go. All right, which one of the, in this picture here, these two young ladies, which is the Visco girl? Which is the Visco girl, left or right? You say right. Why? Scrunchy on the wrist. That's right. On the right side, you have the Visco girl. Okay, so these are the experts in the room. They can mentor you on this later. If you don't understand, it's called reverse mentoring. All right, have you heard the latest Taylor Swift tea? What's the pop proper response? Lover is a bop or I'm a Kaler truther? I'm a Kaler truther. I'm a Kaler truther. Nice try, nice try. Uh, how about this one? This one everyone should know. Which bottle do you want to flip? 
Left, that's right. The one on the left. Very good. How about this? What's, what does this mean if a, if a teacher's holding up this note? Behind the scenes or a K-pop band? K-pop band is right. K-pop band is right. All right. How about this? You get this text, and what do you say back? What do you say back? Do you say bet or... Probably bet. Yeah, bet is correct. Yeah, bet is correct. Uh, Now, how about this? Are you ready for the quiz? Let's get this bread or let's get this basket. Let's get this bread. Let's get this bread. Good. Very good. All right, how about this? Are you coming? Bet. Yeah, that's an easy one, right? Right now. How many know what a Finsta is? Anybody know? Okay, so some of you do. So you've heard of Instagram, right? Uh, so Instagram, Insta, uh, Finsta is essentially like a, an alternate, an alter ego Instagram or a fake Instagram, Finsta, that students create. And usually uh, if they have a Finsta, one is the, is the self they present to the world. So more put together, dignified, it's what they want people to see. And the fake one would be the one, generally, that they share with their friends or where they say what they really feel. So Gen Z has learned from the mistakes of the millennial uh, generation. Millennial generation, many of them going out, trying to get jobs, uh, not being able to get jobs when companies do uh, research on their social media profiles and see some of the things they've done, some of the things they've uh, produced. Uh, they've seen, uh, grown up with people like the double rainbow guy, the millennials, the Star Wars kid, you know, these YouTube videos with the lightsaber. And they've said, boy, we need to like have alter egos, secretive profiles for ourselves to show some of this stuff so that it doesn't stick to our name permanently. And uh, so how about this? Uh, if you, if somebody were to say something funny to you via text message and you wanted to respond in Gen Z by saying uh, that you thought it was funny, which of the following emojis would you text back? This one, the, the crooked uh, laughing uh, cry. You think the first one maybe? Yeah, it's actually the skull. It's the skull, as in I'm dead from laughter. So if you're using the laugh cry emoji like me, you're probably over 30 or over 40, okay? But uh, now not all Gen Z's, of course, use the skull, uh, but uh, it's kind of like uh, what's more popular. So it's not, it's not cringy to use the laugh cry, okay? So don't worry if you're doing that. Uh, it's just not necessarily what, what the kids are doing today, Okay. So, uh, Gen Z, now let me just say, uh, some of you look at this and you think, wow, this is like weird, it's so different, they don't use the same language I'm using, uh, they've gone back to hieroglyphics uh, for communicating and, and, and eliminated some letters from the alphabet, right? Uh, how can we relate? How can we even know this is like a foreign culture? Well, of course it is, uh, but I will just say this, there are three things that today's, uh, that Gen Z is asking Uh, Three questions that they're asking that every generation asks itself. Who am I? Where do I fit? And what difference do I make? Three questions, every generation. Almost probably every person in this room in some form or another has asked themselves these questions at some point in their life. Probably during your adolescence. Who am I? 
Where do I fit? What difference do I make? Do you doubt that this generation is asking questions like, who am I? Consider the search for sexual and gender identity. Not only are they asking these questions, but they're getting very invalid answers from culture of places that they should be finding their identity when ultimately we should be finding our identity in Jesus. And we should be allowing the Holy Spirit to inform who we are, who we were created to be. Gen Z faces some stiffer challenges than generations before. And uh, if you want to read more about this, I would really recommend there's a great book called Growing Young. And it's a book about how churches, uh, how churches that are appealing and attracting large percentages uh, proportionally of young people to their churches, what they're doing. Uh, it's called Growing Young. But, uh, you know, one of the challenges of Gen Z is they have a longer adolescence maybe than any other generation before them. And uh, some of this is, is culturally driven. Some of it is driven by law and changes we've seen in the law over the last 20 years. But uh, Gen Z has a later finish line. Today, young people get married and start families later than ever before. Consider this. I mean, in, our, in my department, the youth department, as part of the Pendel Ministry Network, our fellowship of churches, we just uh, in January brought on uh, two staff members uh, part-time. One is a, a communications director. The other is our project manager and ministry assistant. And our ministry assistant just turned uh, 26 in April, and she started with us in January. And with COVID, we had a great deal of uh, income loss at the network level because we couldn't have large events, and that's what largely drives our income for the district. So it's not like a church where we were good because people still tithe. Uh, it was a very challenging financial time, and so we had to lay off one employee in our department. We had two others who switched jobs, and when we rehired their roles, it was part-time. And, uh, and uh, Maria is who we hired as our ministry assistant, amazing worker. And I said, you know, we want to keep you through the spring at four days a week. It'll be contractual work, uh, part-time. You'll be a contractor. And, and uh, she says, can I be full-time by uh, April 13th? And I said, uh, I, we will make that happen. Why do you need to be full-time? Why is that the date? She said, that's when I turn 26. I have to go off my parents' insurance. And I have to have my own insurance. And, uh, and so April 13th came, and, and her and Corinne, our communications director, we celebrate, of course, Marina's birthday in her office. She said, and, she said, and, and I'm full-time today. Start my, my first big girl job, she said, 26 years old. Uh, you can look down on that. You can have disdain for that if you like, if you're from previous generation. But that is the common experience of young people today. So it is a longer finish line. They stay younger. They put off obligations that maybe your generation experienced at 19, 20, 21 years old until later. They have a later finish line. Uh, 25 is the new 15. Not only do they have a later finish line, Gen Z has an earlier starting line. Remember me saying how companies are marketing to kids as young as three through ads on digital devices? So pressures and targeted advertising that may not have hit them in life till much later is right in front of their face at age three. This begins and starts cycles in their life. Stress that used to hit students in college now starts in middle school. Students used to specialize in one sport in high school. Now it starts in elementary school. And it's the same thing with artistic hobbies. Uh, 
A recent studies uh, showed that 13 to 17 year olds are more likely to experience extreme stress than adults are. Now, a lot of this research was done pre COVID. Uh, the first research has come out uh, in the, I guess I was saying post COVID a few weeks ago, uh, but it seems like we're still mid COVID. Uh, and the first research came out on the effects of COVID on uh, this generation. And uh, prior to COVID, Gen Z had higher levels of stress and anxiety than any generation previously recorded. You can imagine COVID has only contributed to that and caused those. I mean, how many of you, as a result of COVID, had your stress, your anxiety at some point increase? Almost all of us. Almost all of us. Now imagine what that's like for teenagers. My son, he's six years old. We uh, held him back a few months. His birthday's in May. He'll start kindergarten. This week, he'll wear a mask to school. Uh, His teachers will wear a mask. As a parent, we won't even be allowed to go down the hallway in his school building. We won't even be allowed to enter the building at all without a mask on. And uh, so these are deeply challenging times. As a parent, part of me says, well, we'll pull our kid out and send him to private school. We don't have him want him to have this experience. As a missiologist, as a missionary in a culture that needs Jesus, I understand my kid is a part of God's plan. And I don't want to pull him from that mission field. I want him to grow up indigenous to it. Deeply challenging. Deeply challenging. For Gen Z, faith is peripheral to life. Many teenagers simply don't care about faith. Three out of four American teenagers will claim to be Christian, but only about half would say faith is important. Very few go to church, read their Bibles, etc., etc. And when it comes to digital technology, of course, social media largely about connection, yet those connections lack the depth of an in-person, face-to-face experience. And we have a generation, Gen Z, who's grown up with the social media relationship, for many of them, as the primary So they're missing peer-to-peer connections that are personal, that are deep. Of course they have stress. Of course they have depression. Of course they have anxiety. They're looking at models of life that are not based in reality. My family and I just did a national park tour this summer, and we were celebrating our, we we had our 20th uh, wedding anniversary in May of 2020. We couldn't take our trip last year because of the complications of, of COVID, so we took it this year. And uh, the worst part, it was a fantastic trip. We did four or five weeks going across the country and back uh, right after youth camp this year. But one of the worst parts of it was how at every vista, every viewpoint, there was a young person taking about five minutes, striking a hundred different poses, trying to get the perfect pose to post on their Instagram account because they're trying to be influencers. And so they, you know, they're, they're contorting their bodies, you know, in these weird ways. It's not as flattering on me. This is not reality. This is one out of a hundred poses. And so Gen Z grows up with these false models of what life should be like. And they're asking themselves, where do I fit? Who am I? What was I created to do? On a, on a, a course, in addition to all that, we're well aware, all of us here, about the cultural and moral pluralism that has uh, come into our society, that what is right uh, and what is true and what is just is different now. 
uh, from people group to people group. Uh, I recently uh, was speaking with a friend of mine. Uh, he's going to speak at our, uh, at our uh, youth convention this fall, and we were talking about this idea. He was, uh, had recently experienced a loss, and I just said, you know, the law in our nation is not capable of accomplishing perfect justice. That's why we need Jesus. The law comes close, but it can't do it. Same thing for the Israelites thousands of years ago. The law could not accomplish perfect justice. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need Jesus. So I want to just challenge you today with three things that this generation needs, today's student needs, and I'd like you to keep this in mind when you interact with young people, whether they're 3 or 13 or 23, three things that today's student needs. And I have to tell you, for the first time ever, there, uh, there are some unique things about Gen Z that give me a tremendous amount of hope. For example, uh, Gen Z cares less about being cool and more about love. So there's a saying that we teach our youth pastors, warm is the new cool. Warm is the new cool. Used to be like when I was uh, coming into youth ministry, it was like you got to have the hippest youth room, you got to have all the latest whatever in your youth room, you got to have an attractional environment. Today, Gen Z, what they care about most is do you love them? Do you care about them? Uh, they will more quickly spend time with somebody who's 60. We have youth pastors in our network who are killing it, who they're doing an awesome job. That's what killing it means if you don't speak Gen Z. They're killing it. They're 65 years old, two or three of them, and they're doing a fantastic job. It's not because they're most culturally relevant or because they speak the language or because they dress that way. It's because they love students. They love Jesus, they love students, and they help connect those students to Jesus. Now, if there's one thing we ought to be exporting better than any other organization in our culture, it's love. God is love. And so this is a great point of hope for the church. This is a great point of hope for us as we interact with Gen Z. I wanted to read to you from Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. And this is a story of, uh, of a cantankerous older man who uh, took a young man on, under his wing as a mentor, a teenager in fact, and uh, saw life transformation. It's the story of when Paul took Timothy under his wing and uh, began to mentor him. Paul went first to Derby and then to Lystra, and there was a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer. But his father was a Greek. I want to just pause there uh, because there's some key things uh, that are nuanced in the scripture here. Uh, Paul, this is Paul's uh, second, I believe it's his second missionary journey. And uh, not his first time through the area. Uh, he had been here before, uh, a couple years earlier. Uh, he coming back through and there's a young disciple named Timothy. Now young, the, the, the word young here. Hard to determine exactly what it means. Uh, the word young in ancient Greco-Roman cultures uh, could mean anyone who was unmarried up to age 40. Uh, any male or, or female unmarried up to the age of 40. But uh, when Timothy planted a church, 
You recall that uh, Paul writes later to Timothy, uh, do not let, let anyone look down on you because of your youth. Again, calling him a young man. Uh, our estimation is that Timothy was between 25 and 30 years old when Paul wrote that to Timothy, when he was a church planner. He didn't plant that church as a teenager. Uh, he planted it probably in his 25 to 30s. Same word for young. This passage occurs about 13 years earlier. So we estimate Timothy was anywhere between, uh, you know, 12 and, and 17 years of age when, when Paul came along. Uh, he was probably saved on the first missionary journey that Paul took. His mother was a Jewish believer. His father was a Greek. Greek here, not a reference to, uh, to culture as we would understand it today. So it's not just saying, oh, he's Greek. Uh, it's basically saying he was Roman. He was Greek by culture. He was a Roman citizen. Uh, he would have worshipped here uh, the gods of the Roman pantheon. So in other words, uh, Timothy was raised in a household that had a, a believing, a Christian mother, a mother who was Jewish but believed in Christ and a father who worshipped all sorts of other gods through the Roman pantheon. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium, so Paul uh, wanted him to join them on their journey. In deference uh, to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew that his father was a Greek. Then they went from town to town, instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles, the elders in Jerusalem, so the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. God, thank you for this amazing church. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Help us today to be enlightened through the Holy Spirit by your word. God, help me to speak the words you want me to speak, say the things you want me to say. Help me to be obedient and sensitive to your spirit today. God, I pray that everyone here would hear the words, and through your Holy Spirit, anybody here who is just feeling a little sluggish or sick or, or not awake today, God, I pray that you would alert our minds and our bodies through your Holy Spirit to receive what you want to say in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want to tell you today is that today's student needs a spirit-empowered parenting. Today's student needs a spirit-empowered parenting. And here's one of the things I want you to understand is simply this, that Timothy had this. And not just from his mother. And we'll talk about this in a minute, but of course he had a spiritual motherly influence in his life. Paul later writes, he talks about how Timothy uh, first experienced uh, the word and belief in Jesus through the influence and the faith of his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice. And says, your, you know, your grandmother was a model of Christian faith. Uh, she was Jewish, probably came to accept Jesus as Messiah again on Paul's first missionary journey through the area. But also, Timothy had a godly mother who was laying out uh, the facets of faith, what it meant. In fact, Paul later writes to Timothy that he knew the scripture since he was very young. And the word he uses for young there is like a child. That from the beginning, uh, Paul uh, says that Timothy understood the scriptures. Now, I recently, uh, there was a study about 
maybe 15 years ago or so, maybe 20 years ago, that came out from researchers at Duke University. It was a landmark study on the religious lives of American teenagers. And uh, they released the fourth or fifth wave of data from that study just two or three years ago. And so it was just a landmark study. They looked at over 320 students and uh, tried to get a sampling of uh, different religious uh, beliefs, and so uh, mo- and they tried to get a, a, a survey size and an interview size that was comparable in proportion to what the religious faiths are in our nation. And so uh, there were a lot of Baptist students, Catholic students. There were a few Pentecostal and Assembly of God students in this study. There were Muslim students, Buddhist students, and, and so they looked at this. What is the religious uh, 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 view? of teenagers in America. And they coined a phrase during this study uh, that they invented, and it's become a a phrase in youth ministry. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. And if you were to capture the religious life of the American teenager, that's what it would be. Moralistic therapeutic deism. What does that mean? It means essentially that faith is for good morals. Faith is for good morals. Now, we know good morals are a result of following Jesus. Uh, but that's not necessarily what finishes about 20 years ago, that good is God. Good is God. Now, this is a challenge because as we've seen, what is considered to be good can change culturally. What culture considers to be good may not be the same as the eternal good that is found in the Word of God. But good is God, moralistic, therapeutic, God is my therapist. If he exists, he's my therapist. He exists to make me feel better. He loves me. He affirms me. He approves of everything I do. He wants me to be happy. Now, of course, if God wants me to be happy, whatever makes me happy must be approved by God. Now, of course, you see the problem here. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Of course, deism, the idea, of course, that God exists, but he's distant, not involved, not real interactive. But listen, he's good, and if I'm good, I get to go to a good heaven when I die. Now, here's a couple concepts that are missing. Sin is absent from this construct. Uh, Guilt Uh, as in a a sin guilt, is absent from this concept. Uh, Accountability, completely missing. Uh, Sacrifice is gone. In fact, Jesus is not really mentioned. The Holy Spirit. You know, if you're a deist, there's not much room in your life for the Holy Spirit. The personal interaction. And so uh, a lot of that sounds generally pretty good. Morals and therapy, (laughs) but it really misses the mark of one who carries their cross and follows Jesus. Then their fourth wave of data, you know, and one of the reasons they did this study is they discovered, of course, uh, that after high school, young people were leaving the church in droves. Not a secret. Uh, They go to college, they go to career. What ends up happening oftentimes is that uh, sincere students who are dedicated to the Lord, uh, who even who were brought up in the church and maybe are less dedicated, uh, they don't walk away from God, but they walk away from church for a season, and they often return, often when they have kids. 
And so uh, they did this research, and uh, they, in their fourth wave, they got to the, to the point of causation. What causes young people, if they walk away from God, to do that? And a lot of fingers had been pointed over the years. Well, it's the fault of youth ministry. It's the fault of that we don't teach enough apologetics. And it's the fault of this, and it's the fault of that. And here's what the study came down to. The highest factor of whether a student retains their faith or not after high school, I mean far above every other factor, is parents. Mom and dad. If you live your faith out at home, if you pray with your kids and your teenagers, if you read the Bible together, if they come home with cultural issues and you discuss it through a biblical framework and don't just say, well, that's the way it is, so you have to believe it. If you walk with your kids through your faith and their faith, they're much more likely to serve Jesus. Now, if faith is something you just do on Sunday or Wednesday, it's not integrated into your home, you don't pray together with your children, they don't see you living a life of faith, uh, then it's likely that they will just view faith as a tradition that they don't really need to carry forward in their life. Now, this is deeply convicting for me as a parent. I hope it is for you as parents, as grandparents, as those who maybe one day will be parents. Uh, Because here's what it says to me, that church is good, that we should be a part of church. In fact, in this passage, it says Paul and Timothy went about and instructed the believers to follow the directions of the apostles and the disciples in Jerusalem. They were establishing really an authoritative, uh, an authoritative church structure. And essentially said, we have leaders. God's appointed them. We should follow them. We're a part of a church. However, at the same time, Timothy was taught the word from a young age by his mom and his grandma. That the generation of young people we have today, if they serve the Lord when they get older, because they were mostly mentored by their parents to do so. This is deeply significant. In fact, we've got, my son has a comic book Bible. It's like this thick. It's called the first, or it's called the Hero's Bible or something. And he's, he's six, so uh, there's some stories in the Bible. I'm not sure I'm ready to read him yet. And uh, we, we were reading through uh, Ezekiel, and it's a comic book Bible, so it just hits the highlights, and it came to the valley of the dry bones. And I was like, I don't know if I want to read any further, because there's going to be bones and skeletons, and they're going to come together. <laughs> and what is that going to do? Is he going to have a bad dream with this? But you know it doesn't stop with the bones and skeletons coming together. It says flesh forms on the bones. And so we got to the end of that, and I said, what do you think the point of that story was? And... Uh, And uh, I forget exactly how he said it, but uh, it was something like, God makes dead things come to life. Yes, yes, God can make dead things come to life. Today's generation of students needs a spirit-empowered parenting. And if you're a parent of a teenager, a grandparent of a teenager, you know more than anyone else today how much you need the Holy Spirit to be involved in your parenting. The questions students are asking today, what they're hearing from culture at school on TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, are so confounding. We need the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom. 
We need the Holy Spirit to give us knowledge. We need the Holy Spirit to help guide us. So today we need that. And you might think, uh, well, Paul, you know, Paul comes and he picks up Timothy, and Timothy has this godly mother, but his father was a Greek. This is true, but a spiritually fatherly influence was in his life. And it came from two places. I'll talk about the first one now. It comes obviously from Paul. Paul goes on and he takes Timothy under his wing. They go from church to church. They instruct the believers in what the the church of Jerusalem is saying and obey the apostles and the disciples. And they go, continue to go into synagogues from town to town as is Paul's method. And they declare to the Jews first that Jesus is the Messiah that they've long prayed for. And Paul begins to mentor Timothy. And when he writes to Timothy later, he says, Dear Timothy, my son in the Lord. He wrote to the Corinthian church, I'm sending Timothy to you. He is my son. Even dropped the idea of my son in the Lord. He says, he is my dear son. And so Paul begins to take Timothy under his wing, not just as a a spiritual father. You know, Rob... Uh, You interned with me 12 years ago. We did a 26-mile hike in your first two days. True, we were raising money for Speed the Light. And uh, uh, we have a great uh, kind of relationship like that. And sometimes you call, and, you you know, we we had dinner last night, a couple hours together. It was great to meet Zeb. And we have kind of that mentoring relationship. But you're not my son. It's not that close. But it is close in terms of mentoring. Paul and Timothy went that much deeper. Paul would say, you are my son. You're my son. I would say, I've had the privilege of being a mentor from time to time in Rob's life. But uh, he's not my son in the Lord. I didn't teach him the faith. He got that from somewhere else. Uh, Paul, from about the age of 12 to 15, takes Timothy, when he's that age, under his wing and begins to mentor him. When it came to faith, Timothy's real biological father was an absentee father. My wife and I, we used to raise Great Danes uh, years ago. And uh, it was uh, how we uh, got an income stream to pay for our schooling. And we had, I don't know, dog breeding is weird. I don't know if you've ever done it, but you know, dogs had tests and health examinations and all this to make sure they were perfectly healthy. And then we would have puppies and, and uh, send them into loving homes. But... Uh, our sire dog, his name was Jim. And uh, Jim, uh, his head came up to here on me. Uh, if you've ever seen a Great Dane, you know they're big. And Jim was like uh, the Apollo of dogs. You know, he was just a big stud dog. And I'd take him on hikes in the mountains. And, uh, and we were, uh, he was my, my best dog ever. But uh, we'd have these litters, and he weighs, you know, 170, 180 pounds. And he's huge, and he's imposing, and he could scare anybody uh, with his bark. Very gentle. Uh, And when the puppies got old enough where they could run around, we'd let them out into the living room and run around. And Jim would take off and run up the stairs, whimpering, and would just stand on the platform of the stairs and look down, and would not come down until the puppies were gone. Because Jim, as big as he was... And as imposing as he was, and as scary and intimidating and heavy as he was, was ultimately kind of a scaredy cat. 
I kid you not, one day he was laying in our bed and a thunderstorm hit and a crack of thunder went off. And I don't know how he did it to this day, but he jumped up, on all, jumped up from all fours off of the bed. And when he came back down, he dove under the covers. <laughs> it was something out of Scooby-Doo. I, I don't understand how that happened to this day. But what he was scared of more than anything was the puppies, his own puppies. His offspring. You know, sometimes spiritually, moms and dads, we're like that with our kids. Uh, We consider their spirituality, their relationship with God, almost so sacred and so important that we're afraid to touch it. We're afraid to get in there and do the work that needs to be done. We're afraid to have the hard conversations that need to be had. Uh, And Jim When it came to his puppies, of course, he was an absentee father, which you frequently see, of course, in the animal kingdom. And God has made us higher than the animals. He's appointed us the crown of his creation, just a little lower than the angels. Mom, dad, don't be absentee parents. Don't hide up on the landing when it comes to matters of faith in the lives of your children. Do not buy into the cultural lie which says you've got to let your children decide who they're going to be. God has placed you as a steward in their lives for a reason. Be involved. Ask them the hard questions. Today, fathers teach their Sons and mothers teach their sons and daughters how to do all kinds of things, how to hunt, how to cook, how to clean, how to cut down a tree or fix a car, how to work a, a website or technology, how, how their toys work, and yet constantly defer on spiritual matters. Be involved. Be involved. Paul takes on the role of father. He does what men of the church should do when they can. As the Spirit leads them, become a spiritual father to the spiritually fatherless. I wonder if there might be kids in your neighborhood, teenagers in your community, maybe in this church, who are in this situation. They have one good spiritual influence, but they lack another. Is there a young person God would have you take an interest in? You don't have to speak Gen Z to do it. You have to love God and you have to love them. You have to be willing to show them that you care. Second thing today, student needs. They need a spirit-empowered parenting, but they need also a spirit-empowered church. A spirit-empowered church. And talk about the idea here that Timothy had a spiritual father in the person of the Apostle Paul. That uh, It was about three years um, that uh, Paul came and he preached in Lystra and Iconium and Derby was saved. He left town and then three years later he came back and found that Timothy was a disciple there. He takes him on as his, uh, as his, as his apprentice. would be called a Talmudim in that day, a student of the law serving under a rabbi, which was the Apostle Paul. But there was this multi-year period, three to four years from the time the Apostle Paul preached the first time and Timothy's family came to the Lord, and then the time Paul comes back and takes him as his disciple. And there's some nuance listed here in the scripture that, I don't know if you caught this or, or, or if you saw this, but it simply says this, that the believers of Lystra and Iconium thought very highly of Timothy. And so... 
Paul wanted to take him on the trip. In some translation, it'll say the men of the church or the men uh, in those areas spoke highly of Timothy to the Apostle Paul. In other words, uh, there was a relationship between the believers in the church and between Timothy. They knew Timothy well enough to think highly of him. They knew Timothy well enough to be able to testify on his behalf to the Apostle Paul. See, there was this multi-year period between the time the Apostle Paul came and the time he came back. It was in that time that, the, that Timothy found a spiritual fatherhood, a mentoring, a relationship with people in the church. He didn't just go to church on a Sunday and uh, from week to week had a passing familiarity with people. Rather, you get the idea that there was a community here. That the believers were involved in Timothy's life. For three years, Timothy would have been involved in the church, interacting and worshiping together with the believers there. And so they came and they basically said to Paul how highly they thought of Timothy. Paul finds Timothy as a disciple at Lystra. The brothers and sisters attested on his behalf. You know, uh, you can't really speak to someone's character. You can't really speak about how highly you think of someone unless you know something about them. Have you ever been asked to be a reference for people on resumes or uh, uh, for college applications? This happens to me because I'm working in youth ministry and working with teenagers and, of course, working with youth pastors. Uh, youth pastors will ask me if I could be a reference on their resume. And uh, some of them I know very well. And I can speak to their character and to their work ethic and to their uh, philosophy and method. And others, I don't really know at all. They're just asking me to be a reference by virtue of my position. And so when a pastor calls and says, what do you, what do you think about this person? And I, sometimes I just have to say, I really don't know him that well. They're credentialed with us. They've been a youth pastor this long. They seem okay. Others I know personally. And I can say, uh, this is the right person for you. This is the right person for your church. Uh, They're a person of integrity. They're relational. They're organized. They do this. They do that. And I can speak very specifically to their qualities. Because when you attest to someone's character, to who they are, you can't do that unless you know who they are. I mean, really know them. That's the image that you get of the church and Timothy when, they, when Paul then says that in the scripture they, they thought very highly of Timothy. And so Paul wanted to take Timothy with him. They spoke highly enough of him. They were involved enough in their life. I love what, uh, what our missionary shared earlier. I know your last name is Oberholzer, right? What's your first name? I'm sorry, forgive me. Jess, I love what Jess shared earlier. They want to provide a school, an environment for these kids in the community who have lost both their parents owing to the COVID uh, crisis and the disaster that it's been in India. Uh, I love that. The church getting involved in the lives of young people in the community. Getting to know who they are. Speaking to their Uh, being able to speak in the formation of their character through the power of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it can get a little difficult to do this in the church. This is a very busy area. 
You know, it's a, a you know, of course, this area of, of our of our network, of our fellowship, of our nation. It's a you know very highly mobile suburban area. We know that the pace of life is busy. There's lots of traffic. It takes a long time to get anywhere. You come home, you got things to do. There's church on the side. It gets difficult. Oh, I'm involved in the nursery. And then it goes on and on and on all the way through. There's multiple commitments that can you can have in the church plus the pressures of culture. Let me just challenge you, church. The, the time when uh, most uh, churches lose an interest when people in churches lose an interest in young people is about the teenage years because it gets harder it gets more difficult it gets more challenging it gets awkward that's the time they may need you to be involved the most so please don't give up please continue to be involved after all the next generation is our responsibility and it is a privilege and an honor to carry it Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 4, verse 14, he says as Timothy was sent out, the church laid hands on him. The handprint of the church was upon him. It's where we have the pattern of, it's where we establish the pattern of ordination that the church follows to this day. Friends, we can't send Gen Z out without having the handprints of the church upon their lives. And there's a difference between mentorship and parentage. You know, you uh, can uh, replace parents in a spiritual sense, but you can't really replace them physically. Obviously, that's impossible. There's no replacement for a physical, godly mother and father, but we can be mentors. Spiritual mothers and fathers. The church can fill this role, and everyone can play a part. I started in youth ministry in Roxborough at uh, the worship center. And uh, we had uh, uh, an older saint in the church. She was in her 80s, Doris. And Doris, uh, they called her Grandma D in the youth group. And she would just write letters. She wanted to know when every student's birthday was. I need a list of students' birthdays. And she would just write them letters. Uh, I'm praying for you. Uh, I love you, Grandma D. She wanted to have an involvement in their life. I'm not, you know, when it comes to playing a role in the spiritual development of teenagers, some of you, God wants you to take a teenager under their wing, and others of you, God just wants you to send birthday cards so they know someone cares, so they know someone loves them, so they know someone is praying for them. But there's a role and there's a place and there's a thing that every person in the church can find to do as it relates to the next generation. And lastly, today's student needs a spirit-empowered existence. Needs spirit-empowered parenting, whether it comes naturally or from one of you who takes them on. It needs a spirit-empowered church, groups of people in the church that come alongside them, that love them, that care for them. But they also need to experience the power of the Holy Spirit for themselves. They need to learn what it means to hear the Holy Spirit speaking to them, guiding them, so that when they are out there on their own and they hear things from culture and the world and the pressure comes, they know how to listen to God. They know how to hear from the Spirit. Another study was done. You know, I told you that the group of uh, researchers from Duke did this study on the next generation, the spiritual lives of American teenagers. There was a study done exclusively by, uh, on, exclusively on, 
Assemblies of God teenagers, post-high school. It was done by Dr. Steve Pulis, and he studied what factors help an Assembly of God teenager retain their faith after high school. So the Duke study looked at why students leave the faith or leave their church. Uh, Dr. Pulis' study looked at what helps Assemblies of God students specifically retain their faith after high school. And uh, his findings were somewhat consistent and somewhat inconsistent with what the Duke study found. Parents were a uh, very high influence, but they were the second highest influence, not the highest. Peers uh, were the third highest uh, influence, just like the Duke study. And the Duke say actually, they were the second highest influence. But the top influence for Assemblies of God students in churches just like this, who continue to serve Jesus after high school, was the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. That's what I want for my son. Don't you want that for your kids, that the Holy Spirit even overrides your own authority in their life? That's a radical faith. That's what I want. I want my son to understand what it means to read the scriptures and hear the Holy Spirit speak to him. I want him to understand what it means to pray and have an experience with the Holy Spirit. Your generation's experience, your experience with the Holy Spirit is good and it's powerful, but it cannot sustain the next generation. They have to experience the power of the Holy Spirit for themselves. They have to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in their own life. It talks about in 1 Timothy 1.18 that Timothy was prophesied over that a special Gift of ministry came into him through the laying on of hands. The gods, uh, Paul says to him, uh, fan into flame the gift that is in you. He had this experience. He experienced the Holy Spirit for himself. And that is something we've got to constantly encourage this next generation in. I just did a study of youth pastors who've served in our churches for uh, more than five years. We surveyed 79 youth pastors across the nation who... Uh, have served with longevity in their churches five years. One had served in his church for 26 years. And one who had been in her church for 15 years, when we did the interview with her, she said, how can anyone even minister to this generation today without the power of the Holy Spirit? What's the answer to the transgender question? I don't know, but the Holy Spirit can inform your kids. The Holy Spirit can do that. We recently... uh, wrote a policy for our conference center, which I know this church has come to multiple times, a kids' camp and for uh, a winter retreat and, and, and for youth camp sometimes. And, of course, the question is coming to us more frequently. This year we had three or four youth groups write and say we weren't ready to come to camp. We've got students who are signed up who identify they're, they're transgender. We don't know what to do with their housing. And so we had to come up with a policy Uh, not that excluded them, but that found a way to include them. The the answer, because you're probably wondering, well, what does that look like? Uh, We have to put them basically in their own room. Uh, If a student identifies as another gender, if they function as another gender, it's, it's uh, it's not appropriate for them to stay in either gender room. Uh, Because it, it is, it's a dysphoric situation. But the point was this, We've got to find a way to to allow them to come. 
Because if there's any student that needs to hear from the Holy Spirit, it's those that are confused about these very core elements of their identity. The Holy Spirit will break through in ways that our own words, that psychology, that school counselors and religious counselors cannot. We've got to find a way for them to come. We've got to keep showing the love of Jesus. We've got to help students experience the Holy Spirit for themselves. And we recognize that Jesus is the baptizer, that the Holy Spirit brings the gifts and the power, but you know, it's up to us to take the initiative to set a model for our students to provide environments of prayer and of seeking the Lord where they can personally experience the Holy Spirit. It's up to us to model for them what it looks like to go to the altar in a difficult situation and to seek God. And if we don't lay hands on this generation with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, who will? This may be one of our most sacred duties as followers of Jesus. I want to invite you to stand with me as we close this time together. And uh, I hope you've been challenged in some ways today. As you know, uh, probably a word you've heard a lot in the last five years, or a set of words, you've probably heard the words cancel culture, right? Probably heard those words, right? If you don't agree with us, we're going to cancel you, attack you on social media. We saw in the presidential election cycles, for example, you had uh, bands and musicians uh, telling the former president, we don't want you even using our songs at your rally. I got to say, I am thankful to serve Jesus who knows all the things that I will do and say, who knows the greatest shame of my life, who knows the embarrassment that I've brought to him from time to time, and yet still says, take my name my name. Believe in me. Take my name upon yourself. He knew about the Holocaust and he still says to humanity, take my name. He knows about the stupid thing you did last week. He still says, take my name. He knows about the shame that you've been uh, bearing in public. Maybe a mistake you made, a lie you told, a lack of integrity. He still says, Take my name. We serve a God that cancels sin. He never cancels us. I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for that. That's what Gen Z needs to hear from the church. They need a spirit-empowered parenting. Spirit-empowered church, a spirit-empowered existence. I'm just going to ask you, church, would you just hold your hands out in front of you like I am, just with your palms up to God? What a deeply challenging time we are living in when it relates to the next generation. Cultural, religious, moral pluralism, mixed signals, identity being attacked at the core. As long as I've been in youth ministry, we've spoken to students about identity. Now the conversation at identity has moved to the core of our being. So God, I pray today that the power of your Holy Spirit would be placed in the hands, the hearts, and the minds of every person here who willingly puts their hands in front of you like a, like a child going to a parent, waiting to receive something. God, I pray that they receive today the power of the Holy Spirit to 
provide a spirit-empowered parenting, either biologically or through relationships in the neighborhood and the church. That they would provide a spirit-empowered mentorship and parenting for those who don't have it. That they would provide a spirit-empowered parenting for their own biological children and grandchildren. God, I pray that you help Bridge to be a powerfully spirit-empowered church investing in kids and in youth of the next generation. And God, we pray with desperation that our kids, that our teenagers would experience the power of the Holy Spirit for themselves. God, what you did for us and the generations before us, do ten times more in this generation. God, we pray that they experience words of wisdom and knowledge, speaking in tongues, interpretation, that they operate with faith, that they see miracles, that they see healings, that they see movements of power that are orchestrated not by man, but by your Spirit. God, we pray for these things, and we pray for them in desperation, because these are not things we can orchestrate. They can only come from you. So God, we just pray for that with our hands up to the heavens, a confession that we need you, that we want this, the power of your Holy Spirit in the next generation. God, I pray for every parent here, every grandparent who is challenged right now with difficult situation with adolescents or with children in their, in their home and in their immediate family. God, I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit gives them wisdom and courage to have the hard conversations, to speak truth in love to a generation, to their kids and their grandkids that need to hear it. God, we need you more than ever before. God, we pray for every student in this community and within the sphere of influence of this church that struggles with their own identity, whether that be a gender identity, a sexual identity. God, we pray that all these identity issues be surrendered to you that you be allowed to speak in every student's life to their createdness, to the person you've called them to be. God, we need you. We just ask for your help in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Church, thanks for allowing me to speak to you. You guys got a song? Uh, Let's go ahead and lead up with a song together. Thanks, Lisa.